Well, this is the final lesson on this study of post-exile Israel. And we call this lesson Nehemiah's Other Accomplishments. We couldn't leave Nehemiah undone, having just simply completed the wall. Though that is what Nehemiah is best known for, is the completion of the wall. That was really just the first few chapters of the book of Nehemiah. There's eight more chapters thereabout after the completion of the wall that covers his other great accomplishments were just as significant and probably more difficult than just the wall completion. The wall only took 52 days to complete. It had been under uh, construction for many, many decades. And though it had been set back by an edict from Artaxerxes hindering the completion, what was left undone only took 52 days to complete. So what we want to do is pick up and just finish the life of Nehemiah. Our overall title is called Building Revival. And what we want to take away from that is that revival doesn't just happen. You build up to it. It takes construction and prayer. And even when revival does happen, it's not just about people falling in the floor. It's not just about people getting saved. Revival is about building the kingdom of God. That's going to include building facilities, starting Bible schools. That's going to include organizing kids' wings, kids' departments, evangelistic outreaches. Revival, for some reason, we have thought revival is just a bunch of services. Uh, Every night for a week, from eight till midnight. Let the Holy Spirit have his way. Great, but what happens come Saturday? Do we go back to our life as usual and wait or plan for the next revival, the next summer? But what we see with the move of God is it gains momentum, it builds and it continues and perpetuates and it it goes up in the ranks of society and it goes down in the ranks of society and it goes laterally too. So sometimes we've thought revival is just a bunch of special services when really, in fact, revival is all about God firing up his people to affect every area of life they touch. And that's why we've been studying this. So let's look at our lesson. Nehemiah will always be known for being the leader that rebuilt Jerusalem's walls in 52 days. However, that is not the end of the story. Under his leadership, many other significant obstacles were overcome. And I was, Nehemiah always encouraged me when I became pastor because when you study Nehemiah, you realize that all he wanted to do was build a wall. What motivated his heart was when he heard that the walls were broken down and burnt and that the people of Israel, of Jerusalem, were in despondency and they were distressed. All he wanted to do was leave the cup-bearing position under the king for a season and go build the walls, but he never knew everything God had in store for him. And we need to take that as encouragement that God will provoke you. God's really slick sometimes. He'll put something on your heart, lay something at your feet that you're passionate about. But in order to get there, there's 15,000 other things he wants you to do. And he kind of tricks us because I'm convinced if he told us everything it would take to get there, we would probably say it's not worth it to us and back off. So he lays this giant thing in our bosom and in our heart that we're passionate about, and we're so passionate about it, we'll just do whatever it takes to get there. And then even once we get there, he he still doesn't tell us everything else that's to be done. That's the very thing that happened with Nehemiah. You know, when King David, when he killed Goliath, all he saw was just a big bear with a sword that needed taking out. He never realized where it would take him. And he never realized everything that would be entailed in that. Because David didn't just kill Philistines, David built cities. David destroyed cities. David led a nation into worship. David invented instruments. The Lord just doesn't always show us everything he has in store for us. As Corinthians 2 says, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither has it entered into our heart yet. 
what God has prepared for us. But we set off on this journey to seek and serve God. And along the way, I really believe it may not be the best way to put it. It may not be the best doctrine, but I think he tricks us into doing some things. And and it's just what we have to do if we're going to glorify him. And we always choose to do it because we want to glorify him. That's the story of Nehemiah. He just wanted to build a wall. He was not a military leader, but he had to be a military leader. He was not a reformist, but he had to reform Israel. He was not a governor, but he had to quickly learn how to be one. All he wanted to do was build a wall. I can build a wall. And Artaxerxes looked at him and said, well, if you want to do that, how about you be governor too? Well, if I have to do that to build the wall, okay, whatever. But with that governor position came all these other things that God wanted to use him for. And that's going to be us. There's something we want to do, and God will put you in a position to do it. And while you're there, he says, take care of these other things. And those other things are just as important to God as the one thing that is truly important to you. We'll see that as we look here. Many other significant obstacles had to be overcome. Many of these great accomplishments are still necessary if we are to have a successful move of God's spirit. So I've got these bulleted as major events, major things he accomplished. And what we need to understand, we'll see it as we move on here, is that there are things halfway through Nehemiah's reign as governor, he went back to Persia. The the king called him back. And he was only gone for a few years. We don't know how long, maybe three years, maybe six years. So a lot of this stuff he implemented after he came back. And we'll see the, the, um, the timeline break down there. But one of the things he did here was city security. So we have some verses to look there and read. Now it came to pass when the wall was built and I had set up the doors that I gave my brother Hananiah the rule over the palace, charge over Jerusalem. For he was a faithful man and feared God above many, more than most. And I said unto them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun be hot. Also appoint residents of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts and some near their own houses. So one of the things we see he had to do is after he built this wall, he had to establish security. Every good church has to have security, especially when there's hostile enemies at the gate, as was the case with Nehemiah, he was constantly building the wall, having to talk to Sanballat, Geshem, and Tobiah, and basically tell them, I don't have time to come off this wall. Go away. I'm too busy working for God to pay attention to your little distraction. And so we have to keep that in mind. Sometimes the devil will try to distract us off of what we're doing for God, and you've got to know when to chase the enemy and when to just flat out ignore him. Sometimes things in our life the enemy does just to distract us, and we'll spend our whole Christian walk trying to chase it and deal with it. At some point, you recognize things and you just say, you know what, that, that's just a distraction. I'm just not even paying attention to that anymore. It's pulling me away from my own personal wall building and I don't have time for it. But after the wall was built, those idiots, Tobiah, Sanballat, and Geshem, they're still on the outside, so we can't neglect security. So Nehemiah institutes security. And he puts his brother, not because of nepotism, that's just the promotion of family members. He puts his brother because he was faithful more than most. And he also gives specific orders. The doors aren't to be open until it's really hot. So you can't have folks sneaking in in the cool of the day or the cool of night or at dusk. The gates only open when it's hot and only those that really mean business are going to come in. Completing the wall of Jerusalem was just the beginning of Nehemiah's assignment from God. Now, in Nehemiah's eyes, that's all he thought was he was going to need to do. That's all he saw was build the wall. But that was just the beginning because that took 52 days and then everything else 
takes place. Every body of believers must establish some form of security in order to protect the people from interruption and crime. Every church has to have this, unfortunately. Every home has to have this. Nehemiah chose his brother to head this task, not because of kinship, but because of faithfulness and holiness. He involved the whole assembly in its own security. And I like that. He also appointed residents of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts and some near their own homes. When you involve the people, it means more to them. And God always does that. He gets the the body involved in its own protection. He gets the body involved in its own well-being. There's often a movement in churches to employ people. But you shouldn't employ people. They should do it because it's their own. It benefits themselves. There's often a movement to uh, to use hirelings. I, I honestly, personally, don't understand churches that hire janitors. I really don't understand that. You're neglecting the body of a blessing. I don't understand churches that have it in their ability to do the work themselves and contract it out. Part of me believe it's because it's just easier just to spend the money rather than train the people to protect the city. And so Nehemiah began by building the wall, but the next thing after the wall is securing the wall. And that's what he did. So that, that's no small task there. That's the job of some people's companies is security. But that was another major accomplishment in Nehemiah's life. He secured the city after he built the wall and it allowed things to repopulate. When there's no security, you can't thrive. When there's no security, you can't marry. When there's no security, you can't trade. Security is always prominent. It has to take the preeminence in anything you do. There must be a security force there. You can't have a government without security. It's just anarchy. So this thing's critical. In your own life, you've got to secure things. Your kids won't develop if they're not secure. Your marriage can't develop if it's not secure. There's not a thing in life that can grow without security. Even gardens have to have security. Even in biblical times, they would build a wall around the vineyard or a hedge to keep the foxes and the vermin out. Nowadays, we don't do that. We have all sorts of technological things, but it produces an electronic security, whether you're talking about spraying for pesticides or whether you're talking about uh, scarecrows to scare the crows away or even some fences to keep rabbits and deer out of agriculture. So we have to have security. The next thing Nehemiah did as we look at his accomplishments is family registration. This is very critical. He had to basically take a census of everybody that was left and everybody who had newly arrived. Nehemiah chapter seven. So my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials and the common people for registration by families. I found the genealogical record of those who had been the first to return. Those in the time of Zerubbabel. These searched for their family records, but they could not find them and so were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. That's kind of strict. But if you can't improve, couldn't prove your pedigree, why would we trust you? The governor, therefore, ordered them not to eat any of the most sacred food until there, could be, there should be a priest ministering with the Urim and the Thummim. We'll explain that in a moment. So what Nehemiah does is, as the new governor, he's built the wall He secured the city. Now we have to set in order the God-ordained civilization that is Israel. How do we do that? Everybody in God's people in Israel had roles. Priests, which were Levites. You had the Nephinim. Uh, You had all these different aspects of Judeo culture, and they were all based on families. So we have to prove who you are. And if you couldn't prove it, 
especially for the priesthood, he said, you don't get to touch anything that belongs to the priests and the Levites until a priest can arise that can minister by the Urim and the Thummim, which nobody exactly knows for sure what those are because the Bible never clearly spells it out. Some theologians believe they were perhaps stones that the Spirit of God would manifest upon. Uh, some people believe they stand for the light and the truth that these are two, two philosophies or two manifestations of the Holy Spirit. Either way, we know, we know it was a supernatural way that the high priest would hear from God by what we would know in the New Testament as the word of knowledge or the word of wisdom. We don't know exactly what they were. Were they plates? Was it a mirror? Was it some kind of object? Because we know the, the, the Israelites had, for lack of a better term, mystical items. The Ark of the Covenant, the world would call mystical. The power of God rested on that thing. Aaron's rod would be considered a mystical object because it budded and proved he was the high priest. And so we don't know specifically, we couldn't say it was a set of stones or it was a, a, a magical mirror, for lack of a better term, forgive all this new age speak. But it was, one translation is the light and the truth, the Urim and the Thummim. But what it was, was basically we would know it in the New Testament as the manifestation of the Holy Spirit revealing things that could not otherwise be revealed. That's why he said, if you claim to be a Levite, fine. But until I can prove it by a real high priest who operates by the light and the truth, you sit over here and you don't get to touch anything that truly belongs to the Levite until I can prove it. Basically, he says, I'd rather be safe than sorry. Sorry has put us in slavery for 70 years. We're gonna be safe and keep our, our lineage here in Jerusalem. So God's purpose in this registry was to confirm who was and was not qualified to partake of this post-exile revival. Some inhabitants merely claimed that they were of priestly stock, but when it could not be proven, they were disqualified. This was an absolute excuse me, this was not an absolute disqualification. Nehemiah gave room for mercy should a priest arise who could minister by the Urim and the Thummim, presumably to prove their pedigree. In the New Testament church, we must also take inventory of God's people and make a distinction between people and even leaders who merely claim to be qualified and those whose fruit speaks for itself. So even in the New Testament, we see the same thing. We take, a, in a sense, a spiritual genealogical record, a spiritual registration. Folks come in, and this happens to me all the time as a pastor. New folks will come in and say, I'm called to this, or I'm called to do that. Well, we'll just wait and see. We'll let the New Testament Urim and Thummim speak to me. The word of knowledge, the word of wisdom, perhaps the pastor's office. We'll see if you really are called to be a pastor. We'll see if you really are called to be a singer. We'll see if you really are an anointed psalmist. We'll see if you really are uh, graced with kids. Let's prove you first. That's all he was doing here. It would be foolish for me as a pastor to let a brand new person walk in and say, uh, I'm called to be a worship leader. You should put me on the team. No, no, I shouldn't. I should prove you for a year. The Bible says, lay hands suddenly on no man, rather prove them. The Bible says of novices, let them first be proved. The Bible says of deacons, let them first be proved. So that's all uh, Nehemiah was doing here. We see the same thing brought over to the New Testament. It makes for safe church governments. I've told many folks who felt called to the ministry, I said, if you truly are, just do the basics of Christianity and you will quickly rise to the top. That gifting will quickly manifest. It'll quickly be evident. But if you're not called, it doesn't matter what you do. You're never gonna be called to, to the fivefold ministry the full-time preaching ministry. 
so that's what we see here. This was a big deal. You, you had to realize he's dealing with tens of thousands of people 2,400 years ago. This is a major endeavor on top of the daily ministration that his office of governor dictates. So this is another major accomplishment. I guarantee you this would have taken longer than the 52 days it took to build a wall. But this was just as critical because this established the, the culture and the roles that were to be filled in Jerusalem and in Israel if Israel was going to get back off the ground and establish itself as a culture and a civilization again leading up to the birth of Jesus Christ 400 years later. All right, you with me? You follow all that. His next major accomplishment, we just could not leave Nehemiah undone. We just couldn't. I, as a teacher and a student of the word, I could not just say Nehemiah is known for building the wall and that's it. There's too much other things he did, too many other great things that he accomplished that, in my opinion, were more significant than the wall. So that's why we include them. Reinstitution of holy ordinances and worship. So he leaves uh, Persia, to build the wall. So now he's not only has he built the wall, now he's got to enforce, he's got to develop a security team. Now he's got to deal with the pedigree and the genealogy and the registration of all the families. And now he's got to play priest. He has to see to it that Israel, now that we have a fortified city, now that we have our cultural mores and our cultural positions being filled, now we've got to get back to worshiping God as quickly as possible. As governor of Judea, Nehemiah continued to honor God long after the wall was completed. He also worked to restore the Jews' faith and their walk with Jehovah. So I've got several bullet points here. He promoted Ezra's ministry and the reading of the law. So though Ezra read the law in Nehemiah 8, thank God he had a holy governor that said, you're the high priest, you're actually technically the scribe, but the high priest, you, you do it. So he supported the priest's ministry. That's significant. Ezra would have had a lot of time, a lot, of, a lot more work on his hands had Nehemiah been resistant. Had he, he said, this is my show. This is all about Nehemiah. I'm the one that was sent back. Who are you? But he supported Ezra's ministry. And he was actually there on the platform in Nehemiah 8 where they said, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Nehemiah was there, one of those people saying that. He encouraged Israel to be confident and joyful towards their God. Nehemiah 8.10 says, for the, this is what Nehemiah said along with Ezra and the others. For this day is holy unto our Lord, neither be sorry for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Nehemiah said that during a mass, we would almost call it crusade service in front of the temple with all of Israel or all the remnants gathered. And they were all upset because they had just listened to Ezra read the law. Took half a day. And they wept because they realized how sinful and how dirty they had truly been. They were truly broken. That's revival. When the word is read, not preached, just read, and the Holy Spirit is able to convict Jews of sin. And because of that brokenness, Ezra and Nehemiah had to stand up and say, do not be sorry. This is a holy day for the joy of the Lord is your strength. He promoted the Feast of Tabernacles, which was the Jewish feast celebrating God's provision for Israel in the wilderness. The post-exilic celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles was the greatest Israel had ever celebrated. That's what the Bible says. They've been celebrating that. It was to remind them every year of how God provided for them for 40 years in the wilderness. They dwelt in tabernacles for 40 years. So once they became a nation, God instituted a celebration called the Feast of Tabernacles, where for a week they would live in the backyard in these little tabernacles made out of tree branches. 
And that was to remind them of what God did for 40 years in the wilderness. Well, Nehemiah comes along and reinstitutes that because basically they get to be a civilization again, not just slaves in Persia. But the Bible tells us that when Nehemiah did it, it was the greatest celebration of this feast Israel had ever recognized. And rightfully so, they'd been slaves for 70 years. Actually, at this point, closer to maybe, I think, 150 years. He led Israel in national worship, prayer, fasting, and repentance. Pretty awesome to have a governor that will lead a nation in worship, prayer, fasting, and repentance. He led Israel in renewing their covenant with Jehovah God. Think about what, what would that say if the president of the United States would stand up and in his State of the Union address, rather than blow smoke up everybody's tailpipe about how great the nation is doing, he would say, like the president of Uganda did, repent for the sins of the nation and repent on national television for us leaving our God and declare even for those who would hate him for it, this is a Christian nation and those that call yourself Christian, you should act like it. What would that do? That's exactly what Nehemiah did and it brought the blessing of God upon that nation. Nehemiah 10, 29 says, they clave to their brethren their nobles, and entered into a curse and into an oath to walk in God's law, which was given Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his judgments and his statutes. With that, the, the, they entered into a curse and oath. They basically said, we vow and we commit that we will do the word of God, and if not, may a curse come upon us. That's what that verbiage is saying to enter into a curse, they're basically saying, we're so serious and so dedicated to serving God according to the law of Moses. If we don't, may a curse come upon us. That's how, that's how serious they were. That's what it means in the Bible to curse. It doesn't mean using dirty language like we do in America. It means to invoke a curse upon you if you don't keep your word. He led Israel away from intermarrying and syncretism. If you remember, syncretism is the attempted synchronization of the holy with the profane, the godly with the wicked. It's what Corinthians says, how can light have any fellowship with darkness and how can Christ have any fellowship with Belial? Syncretism is that attempted synchronization of everything Paul says is impossible. Nehemiah, the governor, led Israel away from all of that. He, he basically said, you've married a bunch of heathen, get rid of them. And... Uh, actually, in a sense, instituted divorce and said, put away these kids, put away these mixed marriages as they're not of God. He renewed ordinances that provided for the priesthood, the house of God, and the ministry. He also reinstituted the tithe. This is all the work of Nehemiah. All of this was neglected under apparently Zerubbabel. All this was apparently neglected in everybody previous to him. He came back and instituted all of this. All, and this was a man, done, he was a little cupbearer. He worked in the, cook, the cook's kitchen for the king. This is what God can do with you if you'll say, Lord, whatever you need to be done, I will do it. You just tell me. And in that regard, you never know where it will lead you. He went from being the guy that brought the food to the king, tasting it to make sure it didn't kill him first, to perhaps preparing the food, working in the kitchen, to now he's governor being used by Jehovah. He is God's man for this hour. He is who Jehovah God is dealing with on behalf of his people. All because he said, here am I, Lord, send me. 
He did all of this that the people of God uh, would be able to say, we will not forsake the house of our God. He reinstituted all these holy ordinances in this worship so the people would be able to have the testimony and declare in their heart, we will not forsake the house of our God. Good leadership will lead the people into never forsaking the house of God. Good holy leadership will teach and train God's people to never forsake the house of God. And that's what the people said there in Nehemiah 10, 39. We will not forsake the house of God. Not at all. We will tithe to support it. We will give of our goods so the priests can be fed. We will worship there. We'll not neglect it. That is quite a contrast to today's modern church movement, which is teaching us we don't have to go to church much. Tithing is optional. That is someone who Nehemiah would probably run off. And yet those folks are able to grow large churches today because they've reduced the standard. Nehemiah just keeps raising the standard. He keeps tightening the vice of God's word on the stubborn people and they're submitting to it. Repopulation of Jerusalem. The population of Jerusalem was very sparse at this time, Nehemiah 7.4. Therefore, there was a movement to repopulate the holy city. Can you just stop and imagine all the problems Nehemiah's got to deal with? He had it so much easier in the king's palace. He just had to worry about food, that's it. But now he's in charge of a whole nation. And you've got priest issues, you've got tithe issues, you've got security issues, you've got wall issues, you've got mixed marriage issues. Everything you do, if you do it wrong, God's gonna wipe you out all over again. No pressure, cupbearer. And so now on top of that, it's sparsely populated. He's got to get people in the city. How do you manage a city when there's nobody to manage it? It's like if all of a sudden the population of Cookville was cut by 50%, nobody would be available to fully run the stores. Nobody would be able to fully replace light bulbs in city streets. Nobody would be necessarily available to make sure the wastewater treatment plant was running. What happens if somebody hits a fire hydrant? These things go into neglect. So you have to repopulate a city so the city can maintain itself. That's why this is so critical. Some people moved to the city willingly and were blessed. Others had to be compelled through a lottery system. They drew names. And every 10th person was told, abandon your farm, you're moving to the city. Nehemiah did that. And he didn't, I don't think he felt like he was being too controlling. And they never accused him of being a cult leader or controlling. He said, look, if we're gonna exist Move your tail into the city. Yes, sir, we don't want to go back into slavery. Yeah, you don't. Get back in town. That's how it was. Reconsecration of population. Here's where we see a time change. In the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, Nehemiah had returned into Babylon. So he did all this in about 12 years. Then Artaxerxes, his king, because remember, Artaxerxes is the king over the Persian Empire. Judea is one district of his empire. Nehemiah is the governor over that district under the king. Just as in the days of Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel was a governor and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were governors over districts and provinces. That's how you rule things. When you're in a giant kingdom, you have districts or parishes or provinces, and you have to set governors over them. Pontius Pilate was over Judea when Caesar was king over the world. And so Pontius Pilate, that's why he was the one that tried Jesus Christ. That was in his domain. Here, Judea is under the domain of Nehemiah who reports to Artaxerxes. So apparently in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes' reign, he calls for Nehemiah to come back to Babylon. So he does. 
Nehemiah governed for 12 years before being called back to Babylon. At some point, he requested permission to return to Judea and set things in order again. So they got out of order. The strong voice of leadership left and things began to decay quickly. The last accomplishment the book of Nehemiah records is the removal of the mixed multitude from among the Jews. This was in obedience to Nehemiah 13, 1 and 2. So when Nehemiah comes back, the first thing he notices is he's been gone long enough for everybody to start to intermarry the offspring or the folks around them. Uh, the influence of Samballad, Geshem, and Tobiah. Nehemiah leaves and those guys, the Samaritans, the Midians, the Gittites, the Arabians, they begin to work on the Jewish men again and give them their daughters. It's the first thing he observes when he comes back. What is going on here? Apparently he was gone long enough for the mixed multitude to have children who were old enough to speak because he goes on to say, these children could not speak the language of the Jews, but they spoke Arabian and Samaritan and Egyptian. So he might've been gone five, six, seven, eight years. We don't know. He doesn't tell us. So the first thing he does is he comes back and he removes the mixed multitude. Uh, Nehemiah 13, one and two says, the Ammonite and the Moabite should not come into the congregation of God forever because they met not the children of Israel with bread and with water, but hired Balaam against them that he should curse them. Howbeit our God turned the curse into a blessing. And that's quoting Deuteronomy 23, verse six also says, thou shalt not seek their peace nor their prosperity all thy days forever. So the Moabites, the Ammonites, uh, the Egyptians, we're also part of it, but those two, the Ammonites and the Moabites, the Jews were strictly forbidden to have anything to do with forever. And when he comes back into Jerusalem, these are the very folks the Jews are intermarrying with. Uh, for any man, any weaker man than Nehemiah, this would have been an intimidating effort for numerous political reasons. All right, this, this last major thing he does is totally reconsecrate the population all over again. And you've got to know when he walks in, he's dealing with his councilmen or whatever he called them, his nobles, his princes, and he's got political ramifications the second he sits down. He was not a weak man though, but here's the thing he was facing. Eliashib, the high priest, this is Nehemiah's high priest. This is the man who stands in the presence of God for Israel. This man, this is the biggest preacher in the land. He was allies with Tobiah, the Ammonite. All right, who are our three bad guys in Nehemiah's day? Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem. When Nehemiah comes back, Eliashib, his high priest, is best friends with Tobiah. We have problems. How in the world did Eliashib, who helped build the temple wall, or the wall of, of Jerusalem, how did Nehemiah walk away and all of a sudden he thinks it's okay to be friends with Tobiah? This is that spirit of syncretism at work. When the strong voice of leadership leads, leaves your life, you will feel, you'll find out what you're really made out of. Are you strong enough to always call Tobiah an enemy? Or do you always have to have a greater than you reminding you, Tobiah is your enemy. Tobiah is dirty. Tobiah is your enemy. Apparently, Eliashib was a weak man and he became good friends with the Ammonite who he as a high priest would have known was strictly forbidden. So Eliashib, this religious, high, uh, this religious leader helped lead the building of the wall. 
This religious leader was secretly a close friend with one of Nehemiah's most severe enemies. When Nehemiah returned to Persia for a few years, this religious leader allowed Tobiah to live in the temple of God in a storeroom where the holy things of God were stored. That's like I go to Africa for a year and Gary the elder and Chad the elder and Cephas the elder let a bunch of heathens start living in my office or in our Sunday school room. Muslims, they let Muslims start living in the local church. That's the equivalent of what this high priest did. He should have known way better. Nehemiah threw Tobiah Tobiah and his belongings out, purified the room and moved all of God's belongings back into it. Can you imagine? He says he had to move God's belongings back into it, which means Eliashib and Tobiah, they had to take, this is the storeroom where all the high priest articles were kept and their food. They get rid of all of that, move it someplace else so a heathen can live in there. And Nehemiah comes to church and says, what is this? And throws the man out and all of his junk has to have the priest reconsecrate the room because a filthy pig has lived in it and then move all of God's belongings back into it. Think about this. But now at the same time, because the overall theme of this whole study has been syncretism and the attempted reconciliation of holy things with unholy things, we're seeing this in churches. We're seeing churches throw God out and bring Ammonite worship in and throw the holy things of God out and bring secular things in and make room for them in the house of God. That's what was going on here. That's what's going on in the church today. We throw the word of God out of our services and we bring in motivational speaking. We throw holy worship out and we bring in hippie stuff. That's exactly what uh, Eliashib did, the high priest, when he brought Tobiah in. Imagine removing God's possessions to allow a sworn enemy of Jehovah to live in his house. What you're saying is we don't want God living in the house. We're renting out space now to heathen. And that's what many modern churches are doing. We don't want God dwelling in this house. We want to make room for the heathen. Second reason this was a very difficult decision. The officials and rulers had neglected the Levites in their due portions, forcing the Levites and the singers to depart from their ministry duties and return to farming. So Nehemiah goes back to, uh, I won't keep saying Baghdad because that is Babylon. He goes back to Babylon for a few years. When he comes back, he finds out that his political leaders have begun to move money away from the ministry and do their thing with it so that the priests and the singers were going hungry. They had no choice but to quit ministry to go back to farming. Nehemiah had to rebuke the rulers for their negligence. Nehemiah reinstituted the tithe again. Nehemiah placed trusted men over the treasury, dividing the responsibility among the priests, the scribes, and the Levites. This man, he, just, he has job security because he's working with God's people. As long as you work for God's people, you serve God's people, there will always be job security because God always wants his people better and God's people always seem to not want things better. So the second reason this was difficult was because he had to rebuke not just his high priest, but also his political leaders for being dumb and money grubbing. Number three, the whole nation had returned to desecrating the Sabbath day by working, buying, selling, and trading. Nehemiah had to rebuke the nobles. The first thing was the officials and the rulers. That's the politicians. The nobles are those of kingly descent, the princes, 
You have different types of political or governmental leaders in Israel's culture. You have those that would be like governors or prime ministers or county clerk. That's the first group of people. Here you have what are called the nobles, those that are of the tribe of Judah, the princes, those of lineage. They would be called the princes of Israel. He rebuked this group of, of leaders for their blatant disrespect for God's law. All right, let's review again. The high priest has kicked God out to let the heathen live. The political officials have stolen the tithe to finance their city projects. And now the nobles are letting work and trade because they have all the money take place on the Sabbath day. Everybody has just absolutely forgotten their God. And this man's only been gone less than perhaps 10 years. Nehemiah ordered the city gates to be shut for the Sabbath, terminating all outside business. He placed his trusted men at the gates as guards. Nehemiah confronted the merchants who slept outside the city and threatened to have them arrested. Nehemiah commanded the priests to purify themselves and do their job in this matter. The priests were actually to be the guards of the door. But because they'd been neglected by the nobles or by the officials, they had to go back to farming. So he's got to get on to everybody. Once again, we see this spirit of syncretism come in and get everything out of sync. Nothing is working as it should. Everything's one degree off. And therefore, everything's in a bind. And when everything's in a bind, you're this close to having God absolutely just walk away from you, which is why Nehemiah was so terrified here. Everything they're doing is exactly why they went into slavery, with the exception of Baal worship. But other than that, everything they're doing is exactly why they went into slavery the first time. Number four, many of the Jews had returned to intermarrying Ashdodites, Ammonites, and Moabites. This was syncretism creeping in all over again. The children could not speak Hebrew, but were so indoctrinated by their heathen parent, they actually spoke the foreign languages, though they lived in Jerusalem. This infuriated Nehemiah. That his folks, his people, are already remarrying those from Ashdod. That's the Philistines. The Moabites, the Ammonites, those are the sworn enemies. And not only are they intermarrying, but their kids aren't even being brought up in the ways of Israel. The kids are speaking the pagan languages, which is really like a lot of modern church kids. They cuss, they gossip, they slander, they know their, their game system better than they do their Bible because many Christians have intermarried their life with the world and their kids are more like the world than they are the church. That's syncretism. It's eating the church up alive. And it's going to take strong reformers with strong voices who just don't care. And stand on the wall with the sword and say, you go ahead and try to stop my project. We will drop a brick on your head and we will cut you to pieces. But you have no right, no portion, no inheritance in Jerusalem. Not now, not ever. If we're not careful, and we are watching this work in a lot of churches to their own destruction. If we don't fight it in our own personal lives, we'll bring it into our church. And I'll have to deal with it from my pulpit like Ezra and Nehemiah did. Nehemiah rebuked all of the guilty citizens, invoking a curse upon them. Where's the fluffy love? Nehemiah said and said, you put your wife away or I curse you in the name of the Lord. So you have one of two options. Either obey God and be blessed or disobey my command as the man of God and be cursed. He pulled out their hair, the Bible says. I don't know if he got them in giant headlocks and just grabbed clumps at a time next, but the Bible says he pulled out their hair. How long did that take? 
Did he have people helping him? So, and did they submit to that? Did they put up a fight? The Bible just says something simple and he pulled out their hair and you have to let your mind wonder what did that look like and what did that entail? Did they have a hair pulling out service? Did he get the police to help? Did he put them in stocks and just go by and just grab a clump and just rip it one right after another for their sin? And he made them swear to an oath before God. So number one, public humiliation. Number two, divorce. Number three, you had your hair pulled out. Number four, you had to swear publicly upon punishment of a curse from Jehovah God. He instituted, in essence, national divorce. The most terrifying thing is the high priest Eliashib's grandson had married Sanballat's daughter. Sanballat, the number one enemy of all of the book of Nehemiah, his daughter marries the high priest's offspring. Talk about a failed preacher. That guy, that Eliashib, he must not have ever had a heart for what he was doing for God. If his son was so goofed up, he was able to magnify it into his grandson and the grandson sees nothing wrong with marrying the enemy's daughter. The Bible says simply Nehemiah drove him away. We have no idea what that looked like. Did he literally get on a horse and chariot and drive after him? Did he run him out of town or did he just threaten him? You come back in this city, I'll cut your head off. Put him out. You want the world so bad, get out of the church. We probably should start preaching that in churches more. If you want the world, leave because you're not welcome here. But this is, this is the day of desperation Nehemiah was living in. And no doubt it's the day we live in too. Nehemiah declared, they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. Notice that bold declaration. He, he's indicted the, the executive branch of his government. He has now indicted the priesthood, the ministry of reconciliation, the holiness. Everybody in his government, everybody in his city is perverse. Nehemiah cleansed the priesthood and the people from all strangers. He invoked a national divorce and said, put away your wives and your kids. It's the only way to save Israel. But if they'd have just stayed away from it all to begin with, it wouldn't have been a problem. That's a lot to do and to not be intimidated. This from a lowly cupbearer who all he wanted to do was build a wall, a wall he'd never seen, a city he'd never been to because more than likely he was born, he would have had to have been born in captivity as many years past uh, the original exile return as this was. That's a lot to undertake when all you want to do is build a wall. But notice how the grace of God came upon him and he was able to go from being a lowly cupbearer to rebuking the nobles of Israel and the high priest of Israel and the governors of Israel and issuing a national edict that says, put away your wives or I'm cursing you with a curse. This concludes the biblical account of Nehemiah. Not a bad testimony for the man who began as a fearful cupbearer, a man terrified of the king. But in the end, he was calling the shots. To me, it's a wonderful testimony of what God can do and wants to do with any one of us if we'll just say, here, my Lord. He probably thought the wall was no big deal. It's just a wall, I'll build it and come back. And maybe there's something you see in the kingdom of God that needs building and you think, no big deal, I'll just go build that and come back. But if you'll get to building it, if you ask the Lord permission to build it, there's no telling where the Lord will take you in that. It may be you see something like, uh, you see something in the kids department being neglected. You wanna go build that. And that might lead to you being over the kids department. That might lead you to a national kids ministry. 
That might lead you to speaking at the White House on kids' issues because of what God did through you through the kids' ministry, all because you saw that we were neglecting the poor children in our community. And you had a heart for them and you stepped up and said, Pastor, I have a vision and a heart for how we can reach these poor kids. Let's hear it. I'd like to do this. How much is it gonna take? This much, let's do it. And from there, God grows the thing. And from there, before long, 20 years go by, you're on the president's national advisory board for poverty and child development. There was a man in South Africa, uh, a spirit-filled preacher, who during the times of apartheid was so successful in having a multinational church with Zulus and Indians and whites, the government came to this pastor and said, how do you do it? And he became a counselor and advisor to the president of South Africa. I believe it was Nelson Mandela to tell him how we break down racial walls in our nation because he did it first in his church. And all he ever wanted to do was just pastor sheep. He didn't want to advise a whole nation, but that's where God took him. That's how we have to think. And we can't be afraid. Nehemiah was terrified to ask the king for permission to go build the wall because the king had been the one that issued the decree to tear down the wall. So now he has to ask the king to reverse his order. But this thing was so strong in his heart, he eventually developed the courage to go to the king and say, may I have permission, oh sir, to return to my homeland and build up the wall. I'll be back, I promise, but I must do this. And the king said, sure, how much will it cost and what can I give you to do it? You never know the favor you'll have till you go ask. But it takes work. We've entitled this whole series of lessons, Building Revival. What we have always wanted to do is just sit and let revival take us. But from all nine of these lessons, we see it takes work, it takes prayer, it takes overcoming fear, it takes uh, confronting the enemy face to face, it takes dealing with syncretism and sin in your own life and in the life around you. You cannot maintain a revival until you deal with sin. But that's what we see in this study of the post-exile Israel. And so that concludes these lessons. And I trust we've learned something out of it. There's a lot to all this. Just two little books, Ezra and Nehemiah. Sandwiched in there is the life of Esther, married to King Xerxes. Esther calls him a Hazarus. Most of these kings had multiple names. But we see what God did in Israel for his people because he loved them. Father, I thank you for these lessons. I thank you, Father, that you've taught us something from your word. We thank you for the life and testimony of Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. We thank you that these men being dead yet speak today and we can learn so many things from how how they lived and how they served you and we can apply them to our life today. Father, bless all of these lessons and those that listen to them. May they do great things for you. In Jesus' name, amen.